You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick Community Radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. This is Paris. This is Chuck D. This is Flavor Flav, boy. And you're in tune to 91.1 FM WGDR Plainfield. That's the way it is, and it's always changing, and it is always the same. How's that for psychedelic? We are all seekers after truth. This, 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 this is a special magic. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to fear. I am a traveler. A wanderer. It's always changing and it is always the same. The same. The world is listening. Epstein, it's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Today, we're going to hear a documentary based on a project James Baldwin was working on called Remember This House, his personal account of the lives and assassinations of three of his friends, Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King Jr. He was unfinished at the time of his death in 1987. This is the realization of that project featuring James Baldwin and his writing. Mr. Baldwin, I'm sure you still meet the uh, remark that um, what are the Negroes 
why aren't they optimistic? Um, they say, but it's getting so much better. There are Negro mayors. There's Negroes in all, all of sports. Uh, there are Negroes in, in politics. They're, um, uh, they're even accorded the ultimate accolade of being in television commercials now. And, uh, I'm glad you're smiling. Uh, is it at once getting much better and still hopeless? Well, I don't think there's much hope for it, you know, to tell you the truth. It's not a question of what happens to the, to the Negro here, or to the black man here. That's a, that's a very vivid question for me, you know. But, it, but the real question is what's going to happen to this country. I have to repeat that. You're damn right, I got the blue. From my head down to my shoe. You're damn right, I got the blue. From my head down to my shoe. Summer has scarcely begun, and I feel already that it's almost over. And I will be 55, yes, 55 in a month. I am about to undertake the journey, and this is a journey to tell you the truth, which I always knew that I would have to make, but had hoped, perhaps, certainly hadn't hoped to have to make so soon. I am saying that a journey is called that because you cannot know what you will discover on the journey, what you will do with what you find, or what you find will do to you. No, not only have a right to be free, we have a duty to be free. Yeah. And so when you sit down on the bus and you sit down in the front or you sit down by a white person, you're sitting there because you have a duty to sit there, not merely because you have a right. The time of these lives and deaths from a public point of view is 1955, when we first heard of Martin, to 1968, when he was murdered. Medgar was murdered in the summer of 1963. Malcolm was murdered in 1965. Yeah, take my hand, the Lord. Leave me on that stand. I'm tired. I'm weak. I'm old. The three men, Medgar, Malcolm, and Martin, were very different men. Consider that Martin was only 26 in 1955. He took on his shoulders the weight of the crimes and the lies and the hope of a nation. I want these three lives to bang against and reveal each other, as in truth they did, and use their dreadful journey as a means of instructing the people whom they loved so much, who betrayed them, and for whom they gave their lives. self-respecting, loving parents should take his white child out of that parochial school. The 
forgives murder and he forgives adultery. But he is very angry and he actually curses all who do integrate. That's when I saw the photograph. On every newspaper kiosk on that wide tree-shaped boulevard in Paris were photographs of 15-year-old Dorothy Counts being reviled and spat upon by the mob as she was making her way to school in Charlotte, North Carolina. There was unutterable pride, tension, and anguish in that girl's face as she approached the halls of learning with history jeering at her back. It made me furious. It filled me with both hatred and pity, and it made me ashamed. Some one of us should have been there with her. But it was on that bright afternoon that I knew I was leaving France. I could simply no longer sit around Paris discussing the American problem. Everybody else was paying their dues, and it was time I went home and paid mine. And if you was white, you'd be all right. If you was brown, you'd stick around. But as you black, oh brother, get back, get back, get back. He went to an employment office, the number that I got in line. They called everybody's number, but they never did call mine. They said, if you was white, All right, if you was brown, stick around, but as you black, we'll run. I had at last come home. If there was in this some illusion, there was also much truth. In the years in Paris, I had never been homesick for anything American. But I missed my brothers and sisters and my mother. They made a difference. I wanted to be able to see them and to see their children. I hoped that they wouldn't forget me. I missed Harlem Sunday mornings and fried chicken and biscuits. I missed the music. I missed the style. That style possessed by no other people in the world. I missed the way the dark face closes, the way dark eyes watch, and the way when a dark face opens, The light seems to go everywhere. I missed, in short, my connections. Missed the life which had produced me and nourished me and paid for me. Now, though I was a stranger, I was home. fascinated by the movement on and off the screen. I'm about seven. I'm with my mother or my aunt. The movie is Dance, Fool's Dance. I was aware that Joan Crawford was a white lady. Yet, I remember being sent to the store sometime later, and a colored woman who, to me, looked exactly like Joan Crawford, was buying something. She was incredibly beautiful. She looked down at me with so beautiful a smile, 
and I was not even embarrassed, which was rare for me. By this time, I had been taken in hand by a young white school teacher named Bill Miller, a beautiful woman, very important to me. She gave me books to read and talked to me about the books and about the world, about Ethiopia and Italy and the German Third Reich, and took me to see plays and films to which no one else would have dreamed of taking a 10-year-old boy. It is certainly because of Bill Miller, who arrived in my terrifying life so soon, that I never really managed to hate white people. Though God knows, I have often wished to murder more than one or two. Therefore, I begin to suspect that white people did not act as they did because they were white, but for some other reason. I was a child, of course, and therefore unsophisticated. I took Bill Miller as she was, or as she appeared to be to me. She too, anyway, was treated like a nigger, especially by the cops. Because Uncle Tom refuses to take vengeance in his own hands, he was not a hero for me. Heroes, as far as I could see, were white, and not merely because of the movies, but because of the land in which I lived, of which movies were simply a reflection. I despised and feared those heroes because they did take vengeance into their own hands. They thought vengeance was theirs to take. And yes, I understood that my countrymen were my enemy. I suspect that all these stories are designed to reassure us that no crime was committed. We'd made a legend out of a massacre. Leaving aside all the physical facts which one can quote, leaving aside rape, or murder, leaving aside the bloody catalogue of oppression, which we are in one way too familiar with already, what this does to the subjugated is to destroy his sense of reality. This means, in the case of an American Negro, born in that glittering republic, and in the moment you are born, since you don't know any better, every stick and stone and every face is white, and since you have not yet seen a mirror, you suppose that you are too. It comes as a great shock around the age of five or six or seven to discover that Gary Cooper killing off the Indians when you were rooting for Gary Cooper, that the Indians were you. It comes as a great shock to discover that the country which is your birthplace and to which you owe your life and your identity has not in its whole system of reality evolved any place for you. I begin in September when I go on the road. The road means my return to the South. It means briefly, for example, seeing Merle Evers and the children, those children who are children no longer. It means going back to Atlanta, 
to Selma, to Birmingham. It means seeing Coretta Scott King and Martin's children. I know that Martin's daughter, whose name I don't remember, and Malcolm's oldest daughter, whose name is Attila, are both in the theater and apparently are friends. It means seeing Betty Shabazz, Malcolm's widow, and the five younger children. It means exposing myself as one of the witnesses to the lives and deaths of their famous fathers. And it means much, much more than that. A clod of witnesses, as old St. Paul once put it. I first met Malcolm X. I saw Malcolm before I met him. I was giving a lecture somewhere in New York. Malcolm was sitting in the first row of the hall, bending forward at such an angle that his long arms nearly caressed the ankles of his long legs, staring up at me. I very nearly panicked. I knew Malcolm only by legend, and this legend, since I was a Harlem street boy, I was sufficiently astute to distrust. Malcolm might be the torch that white people claim he was. Though, in general, white America's evaluations of these matters would be laughable and even pathetic did not these evaluations have such wicked results. On the other hand, Malcolm had no reason to trust me either. And so I stumbled through my lecture, with Malcolm never taking his eyes from my face. As a member of the NAACP, Megger was investigating the murder of a black man, which had occurred months before. Had shown me letters from black people asking him to do this, and he had asked me to come with him. Raise up, get yourself together, and that funky soul. I was terribly frightened. But perhaps that field trip will help us define what I mean by the word witness. I was to discover that the line which separates a witness from an actor is a very thin line indeed. Nevertheless, the line is real. I was not, for example, a black Muslim. In the same way, though for different reasons, that I never became a black panther because I did not believe that all white people were devils. And I did not want young black people to believe that. I was not a member of any Christian congregation because I knew that they had not heard and did not live by the commandment, love one another as I love you. And I was not a member of the NAACP because in the North where I grew up, the NAACP was fatally entangled with black class distinctions or illusions of the same, which repelled a Shushan boy like me. I did not have to deal with the criminal state of Mississippi hour by hour and day by day, to say nothing of night after night. I did not have to sweat cold sweat after decisions involving hundreds of thousands of lives. I was not responsible for raising money, for deciding how to use it. I was not responsible for strategy controlling prayer meetings, marches, petitions, voting registration drives. I saw the sheriffs, the deputies, the stormtroopers more or less in passing. I was never in town to stay. This was sometimes hard on my morale. 
but I had had to accept as time wore on that part of my responsibility as a witness was to move as largely and as freely as possible to write the story and to get it out. White people are astounded by Birmingham. Black people aren't. White people are endlessly demanding to be reassured that Birmingham is really on Mars. They don't want to believe, still, less to act on the belief that what is happening in Birmingham is happening all over the country. They don't want to realize that there is not one step morally or actually between Birmingham and Los Angeles. We've invited three men on the forefront of the Negro struggle to sit down and talk with us in front of the television camera. Each of these men, through his actions and his words, but with vastly different manner and means, is a spokesman for some segment of the Negro people today. Black people in this country have been the victims of violence at the hands of the white man for 400 years. And following the ignorant Negro preachers, we have thought that it was godlike to turn the other cheek to the brute that was brutalizing us. Malcolm X, one of the most articulate exponents of the black Muslim philosophy, has said of your movement and your philosophy that it uh, plays into the hands of the white oppressors, that uh, they are happy to hear you talk about love for the oppressor because this disarms the Negro and fits into the stereotype of the Negro as a meek, turning the other cheek sort of creature. Would you care to comment on Mr. X's belief? Well, I don't think of uh, love as, uh, in this context, as emotional bosh. But I, I think of love as something strong and that organizes itself into powerful a direct action. Uh, this is what I tried to teach in the struggle in the South, that uh, we are not engaged uh, in a struggle that means we sit down and do nothing. Uh, that there's a great deal of difference between non-resistance to evil and non-violent resistance. Uh, Martin Luther King is just a 20th century or modern Uncle Tom or a religious Uncle Tom who is doing the same thing today to keep Negroes defenseless in the face of attack that Uncle Tom did on the plantation to keep those Negroes defenseless in the, in the face of the attack of the Klan in that day. Uh, I think, though, that we, we can be sure that the vast majority of Negroes who engage in the demonstrations and who uh, understand the nonviolent uh, philosophy will be able to face dogs and all of the other brutal uh, methods that are used without retaliating with violence because they understand that one of the first uh, principles of nonviolence is a willingness to be the recipient of violence while never uh, inflicting violence upon another. As concerns Malcolm and Martin, I watched two men coming from unimaginably different backgrounds whose positions originally were poles apart, driven closer and closer together. By the time each died, their positions had become virtually the same position. It can be said indeed that Martin picked up Malcolm's burden, articulated the vision which Malcolm had begun to see 
and for which he paid with his life, and that Malcolm was one of the people Martin saw on the mountaintop. Medgar was too young to have seen this happen, though he hoped for it and would not have been surprised. But Medgar was murdered first. I was older than Medgar, Malcolm, and Martin. I was raised to believe that the eldest was supposed to be a model for the younger and was, of course, expected to die first. Not one of these three lived to be 40. organization that no one downtown loves. We need one that's ready and willing to take action, any kind of action, by any means necessary. When Malcolm talks, or one of the Mazinez's talk, they articulate for all the Negro people who hear them, who listen to them, they articulate their suffering, the suffering which has been in this country so long denied. That's Malcolm's great authority over any of his audiences. He corroborates their reality. He tells them that they really exist, you know? And there are days, this is one of them, when you wonder what your role is in this country and what your future is in it. How precisely are you going to reconcile yourself to your situation here and how you're going to communicate to the vast, heedless, unthinking, cruel white majority that you are here. I'm terrified at the moral apathy, the death of the heart, which is happening in my country. These people have deluded themselves for so long that they really don't think I'm human. I had basis on their conduct, not on what they say. And this means that they have become in themselves moral monsters. Most of the white Americans I've ever encountered, really, you know, had a Negro friend or a Negro maid or somebody in high school, but they never, you know, or rarely, after school was over or whatever, you know, came to my kitchen. You know, we were segregated from the schoolhouse door. Therefore, he doesn't know. He really does not know what it was like for me to leave the school and go back to Harlem. He doesn't know how Negroes live. And it comes as a great surprise to the Kennedy brothers and to everybody else in the country. I'm certain again, you know, that most white Americans I have, you know, encountered. They have no, no, I'm sure they have nothing whatever against Negroes. That is no, that's really not the question. 
Now the question is really a kind of apathy and ignorance, which is a price to be paid for segregation. That's what segregation means. It, you don't know what's happening on the other side of the wall because you don't want to know. I was in some way in those years without entirely realizing it, the great black hope of the great white father. I was not a racist, or so I thought. Malcolm was a racist, or so they thought. In fact, we were simply trapped in the same situation. I must sketch now the famous Bobby Kennedy meeting. Lorraine Hansberry would not be very much younger than I am now if she were alive. At the time of the Bobby Kennedy meeting, she was 33. That was one of the very last times I saw her on her feet, and she died at the age of 34. I miss her so much. People forget how young everybody was. Bobby Kennedy, for another quite different example, was 38. We wanted him to tell his brother, the president, to personally escort to school on that day or the day after a small black girl already scheduled to enter Deep South School. That way, we said, it will be clear that whoever spits on that child will be spitting on the nation. He didn't understand this either. It would be, he said, a meaningless moral gesture. We would like, said Lorraine, from you a moral commitment. He looked insulted, seemed to feel that he'd been wasting his time. Well, Lorraine sat still, watching all the while. She looked at Bobby Kennedy who perhaps for the first time looked at her. But I'm very worried, she said, about the state of the civilization which produced that photograph of the white cops standing on that Negro woman's neck in Birmingham. Then she smiled, and I am glad that she was not smiling at me. Goodbye, Mr. Attorney General, she said and turned and walked out of the room. And then we heard the thunder. The very last time I saw Medgar Evers, he stopped at his house on the way to the airport so I could autograph my books for him his wife, and children. I remember Merle ever standing outside, smiling, and we waved. And Medgar drove to the airport and put me on the plane. Months later, I was in Puerto Rico, working on my play. Lucienne and I had spent a day or so wandering around the island, and now we were driving home. It was a wonderful, bright, and sunny day. Top of the car was down. We were laughing, talking, and the radio was playing. Then the music stopped. And the voice announced that Medgar Evers 
had been shot to death in the carport of his home, and his wife and children had seen the big man fall. The blue sky seemed to descend like a blanket, and I couldn't say anything. I couldn't cry. I just remembered his face, a bright, blunt, handsome face, and his weariness, which he wore like his skin. And the way he said, road, for road. And his telling me how the tatters of clothes from a lynched body hung, flapping in the tree for days. And how he had to pass that tree every day. Medgar. free only in battle, never free to rest. And he who finds no way to rest cannot long survive the battle. And the young white revolutionary remains in general far more romantic than a black one. White people have managed to get through entire lifetimes in this euphoric state. But black people have not been so lucky. A black man who sees the world the way John Wayne, for example, sees it, would not be an eccentric patriot, but a raving maniac. The truth is, if this country does not know what to do with this black population, dreaming of anything like the final solution. The Negro has never been as docile as white Americans wanted to believe. That was a myth. We were not singing and dancing down the levee. We were trying to keep alive. We were trying to survive a very brutal system. The Negro has never been happy in this place. One of the most terrible things is that, in fact, whether I like it or not, I am an American. My school really was the streets of New York City. My frame of reference was um, George Washington and John Wayne. But I, you know, I was a child, you know, and the child of his eyes in the world, he has to use what he sees. There's nothing else to use. And you are formed by what you see, the choices you have to make, and the way you discover what it means to be black in New York, and then throughout the entire country. I know how you watch as you grow older, and this is not a figure of speech. The corpses of your brothers and your sisters pile up around you, and not for anything they have done. 
They were too young to have done anything. But what one does realize is that when you try to stand up and look the world in the face like you had a right to be here, you have attacked the entire power structure of the Western world. Forget the Negro problem. Don't write any voting acts. We had that, it's called the 15th Amendment. We don't need a civil rights bill in 1964. What you have to look at is what is happening in this country. And what is really happening is a brother has murdered brother knowing it was his brother. White men have lynched Negroes knowing them to be their sons. White women have had Negroes burned knowing them to be their lovers. It is not a racial problem. It's a problem whether or not you're willing to look at your life and be responsible for it and then begin to change it. That great Western house I come from is one house. And I am one of the children of that house. Simply I'm the most despised child of that house. And it is because the American people are unable to face the fact that in fact I am flesh of their flesh, bone of their bone, created by them. My blood, my father's blood is in that soil. Good afternoon, ma'am. It's raining so hard, I brought robbers and coat to fetch my little girl home. I'm afraid you've made some mistakes. Ain't this a 3B? Yes. Well, this is it. She can't be it. I had no little colored children in my class. Oh, there's my little girl. Piola, you may go home. I know very well that my ancestors had no desire to come to this place. But neither did the ancestors of the people who became white and who require my captivity. been struck in America by an emotional poverty so bottomless and a terror of human life, of human touch, so deep that virtually no American appears able to achieve any viable organic connection between his public stance and his private life. This failure of the private life has always had the most devastating effect on American public conduct and on black-white relations. If Americans were not so terrified of their private selves, they would never have become so dependent on what they called the Negro problem. But they said it wasn't nice to say nigger. Nigger! 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 Poor little nigger kids love the little nigger kids who loved me, who loved me. This problem, which they invented in order to safeguard their purity, has made of them criminals no. and monsters, and it is destroying them. And this, not from anything blacks may or may not be doing, 
but because of the role of a guilty and constricted white imagination as assigned to the blacks. It is impossible to accept the premise of the story, a premise based on the profound American misunderstanding of the nature of the hatred between black and white. The root of the black man's hatred is rage, and he does not so much hate white men as simply wants them out of his way, and more than that, out of his children's way. The root of the white man's hatred is terror, a bottomless and nameless terror which focuses on this dread figure, an entity which lives only in his mind. When Sidney jumps off the train, the white liberal people downtown were much relieved and joyful. But when black people saw him jump off the train, they yelled, Get back on the train, you fool. The black man jumps off the train in order to reassure white people, to make them know that they are not hated, that though they have made human errors, they done nothing for which to be hated. I'm Chiquita Banana, and I'm here to say I am the top of In spite of the fabulous myths proliferating in this country concerning the sexuality of black people, black men are still used in the popular culture as though they had no sexual equipment at all. Sidney Poitier, as a black artist and a man, is also up against the infantile, furtive sexuality of this country. Both he and Harry Belafonte, for example, are sex symbols, though no one dares admit that, still less to use them as any of the Hollywood he-men are you. Black people have been robbed of everything in this country, and they don't want to be robbed of their artists. Black people particularly disliked Guess Who's Coming to Dinner because they felt that Sydney was, in effect, being used against them. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner may prove in some bizarre way to be a milestone, because it is really quite impossible to go any further in that particular direction. The next time, the kissing will have to start. I knew a blonde girl in the village a long time ago. And eventually, we never walked out of the house together. She was far safer walking the streets alone than when walking with me. A brutal and humiliating fact which thoroughly destroyed whatever relationship this girl and I might have been able to achieve. This happens all the time in America. But Americans have yet to realize what a sinister fact this is and what it says about them. When we walked out in the evening then, she would leave ahead of me, alone. I would give about five minutes, and then I would walk out alone, taking another route and meet her on the subway platform. We would not acknowledge each other. We would get into the subway car, sitting at opposite ends of it, and walk separately through the streets of the free and the brave to wherever we were going. 
a friend's house, or the movies. Someone once said to me that the people in general cannot bear very much reality. He meant by this that they prefer fantasy to a truthful recreation of their experience. The people have quite enough reality to bear by simply getting through their lives, raising their children, dealing with the eternal conundrums of birth, taxes, and death. Negroes are continuously uh, making progress here in this country. The progress in many areas is not as fast as it should be, but they are making progress, and we will continue to make progress. There's no reason that uh, in the, uh, uh, the near or in the foreseeable future that a Negro could also be president of the United States. I remember, for example, when the ex-attorney general, Mr. Robert Kennedy, said that it was conceivable that in 40 years in America, we might have a Negro president. And that sounded like a very emancipated statement, I suppose, to white people. They were not in Harlem when this statement was first heard and did not hear and possibly will never hear the laughter and the bitterness and the scorn with which the statement was greeted. From the point of view of the man in the Harlem barbershop, Bobby Kennedy only got here yesterday. And now he's already on his way to the presidency. We've been here for 400 years, and now he tells us that maybe in 40 years, if you're good, we may let you become president. It was a dream, just a dream I had on my mind. It was a dream, just a dream I had on my mind. Let me put it this way, that from a very literal point of view, the harbors and the ports and the railroads of the country, the economy, especially of the southern states, could not conceivably be what it has become if they had not had and do not still have indeed, and for so long, so many generations, cheap labor. It is a terrible thing for an entire people to surrender to the notion that one ninth of its population is beneath them. And until that moment, until the moment comes when we, the American people, are able to accept the fact that I have to accept, for example, that my ancestors are both white and black, that on that continent we are trying to forge a new identity for which we need each other, and that I am not a ward of America. I am not an object of missionary charity. I am one of the people who built the country. Until this moment, there is scarcely any hope for the American dream because the people who are denied participation in it by their very presence will wreck it. And if that happens, it's a very grave moment for the West. We're here in the studio today with seven men who have two things in common. They are entertainers and artists, and they've all come to Washington. 
There are seven out of some 200,000 American citizens who came to the Capitol to march for freedom and for jobs. Uh, will this tremendous outburst now uh, uh, lead to a course of action, Mr. Belafonte? Uh, the now that is being spoken about is the fact that in a hundred years, finally, uh, through whatever the causes have been in history, and most of them have been because of oppression, the Negro people have uh, strongly and fully taken the bit in their teeth. They're asking absolutely no quarter from anyone. But I do say that the bulk of the interpretation of whether this thing is going to end successfully and joyously or is going to end disastrously lays very heavily with the white community. It lays very heavily with the profiteers. It lays very heavily with the vested interests. It lays very heavily with a great middle stream in this country of people who have refused to commit themselves or even have the slightest knowledge that these things have been going on. I am speaking as a member of a certain democracy in very complex country, which insists on being very narrow-minded. Simplicity is taken to be a great American virtue along with sincerity. I'm sorry. I'm deeply sorry. And I'm sorry. I'm deeply sorry about and there that. are no excuses. I am solely. You've made plenty of mistakes. For that, I apologize. I am very sorry. You know, I'm sorry I did this to you, but you gotta get used to it. It's one of those little problems in life. I take full responsibility. I'm here today to again apologize. I'm just apologize for that to her. For any mistakes I have made, I take full responsibility. It's an honor to serve the city of Ferguson and the people who live there. One of the results of this is that immaturity is taken to be a virtue too. So that someone like that, let's say John Wayne, who spent most of his time on screen admonishing Indians, was in no necessity to grow up. I had been in London on this particular night. We were free, and we decided to treat ourselves to a really fancy, friendly dinner. The head waiter came and said there was a phone call for me, and my sister Gloria rose to take it. She was very strange when she came back. She didn't say anything and I began to be afraid to ask her anything. Then, nibbling at something she obviously wasn't tasting, she said, Well, I've got to tell you because the press is on its way over here. They have just killed Malcolm. There is nothing in the evidence 
offered by the book of the American Republic, which allows me really to argue with the cat who says to me, they need us to pick the cotton, and now they don't need us anymore. And now they don't need us, they're gonna kill us all off, just like they did the Indians. And I can't say it's a Christian nation. They were, your brothers will never do that to you because the record is too long and too bloody. That's all we have done. All your buried corpses now begin to speak. But I say violence is necessary. Violence is a part of America's culture. It is as American as cherry pie. Black power, brothers. If we were white, if we were Irish, if we were Jewish, if we were Poles, if we had, in fact, in your mind, a frame of reference, our heroes would be your heroes too. Nat Turner would be a hero for you instead of a threat. Malcolm X might still be alive. And it, you know, everyone is very proud of brave little Israel, a state against which I have nothing. You know, I don't want to be misinterpreted. I'm not an anti-Semite. But you know, when the Israelis pick up guns or the Poles, or the Irish, or any white man in the world says, give me liberty or give me death. The entire white world applauds. When a black man says exactly the same thing, word for word, he is judged a criminal and treated like one, and everything possible is done to make an example of this bad nigger so there won't be any more like him. Look out across this land we love. Look about you, wherever you are. There's unending scenic beauty, and there's freedom. It's an inherent American right, meaning many different things to every single city. It's a leisurely afternoon of golf along a pleasant coast. It's an amusement park, a roller coaster ride. A day at a county fair. A day of excitement. Unrestricted travel across all our 50 states. Unlimited enjoyment of all these jewels in the continent's crown. For all of us, there's all of America, all of its scenic beauty, all of its heritage of history, all of its limitless opportunity. We've dropped too many bombs on Vietnam now. Let us save our national honor. Stop the bombing and stop the war. What I'm trying to say to this country, to us, is that we must know this. We must realize this. That no other country in the world have been so fat and so sleek and so safe and so happy and so irresponsible and so dead. No other country can afford to dream of a Plymouth and a wife and a house with a fence and the children growing up safely to go to college and to become executives and then to marry and have the Plymouth and the house and so forth.
A great many people do not live this way and cannot imagine it and do not know that when we talk about democracy, this is what we mean. Industry is compelled, given the way it is built, to present to the American people a self-perpetuating fantasy of American life. Their concept of entertainment is difficult to distinguish from the use of narcotics. What worries you about them having black partners? Do you think people are going to look down on them or judge yes, them? Yes, I think people look down. Yeah. Watch the TV screen for any length of time is to learn some really frightening things about the American sense of reality. We are cruelly trapped between what we would like to be and what we actually are. And we cannot possibly become what we would like to be until we are willing to ask ourselves just why the lives we lead on this continent are mainly so empty, so tame, and so ugly. These images are designed not to trouble, but to reassure. They also weaken our ability to deal with the world as it is, ourselves as we are. I would like to add someone to our group here. Uh, professor Paul Weiss, a Sterling Professor of Philosophy at Yale. Were you able to listen to the show backstage? I heard a good deal of it, but then I was behind the Boston Gate. Yes. So I heard only some of it. Did you hear anything that you disagreed with? I disagreed you... with a great deal of it. And, uh, of course, there's a good deal I agree with. But I think uh, he's overlooking one very important matter, I think. Each one of us, I think, is terribly alone. He lives his own individual life. There's all kinds of obstacles in the way of religion or color or size or shape or lack of ability, and the problem is to become a man. But what I was discussing was not that problem, really. I was discussing the difficulties, the obstacles, the very, the very real danger of death thrown up by the society when a Negro, when a black man attempts to become a man. All this emphasis upon black man and white does emphasize something which is here, but it emphasizes it or perhaps exaggerates it, and therefore makes us for, uh, put people together in groups which they ought not to be in. I have more in common with a, a black scholar than I have with a white man who is against scholarship. And you have more in common with a white author than you have with someone who's against all literature. So why must we always concentrate on color or religion or this? There are other ways of connecting men. I'll tell you this, when I left this country, in 1948. I let this country for one reason only, one reason. I didn't care where I went. I might have gone to Hong Kong, I might have gone to Timbuktu, I ended up in Paris on the streets of Paris. With $40 in my pocket on the theory that nothing worse could happen to me there than it already happened to me here. You talk about making it as a writer by yourself, you had to be able then to turn up all the antenna with which you live because once you turn your back on this society, you may die. You may die. And it's very hard to sit a typewriter and concentrate on that if you're afraid of the world around you. The years I lived in Paris did one thing for me. They released me from that particular social terror, which was not the paranoia of my own mind, 
but a real social danger visible in the face of every cop, every boss, everybody. I don't know what most white people in this country feel, but I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. I don't know if white Christians hate Negroes or not, but I know that we have a Christian church which is white and a Christian church which is, which is black. I know as Malcolm X once put it, it's the most segregated hour in American life is high noon on Sunday. That says a great deal for me about a Christian nation. It means that I can't afford to trust most white Christians and certainly cannot trust the Christian church. I don't know whether the labor unions and their bosses really hate me. That doesn't matter, but I know I'm not in their unions. I don't know if the real estate lobby is anything against black people, but I know the real estate lobbies keep me in the ghetto. I don't know if the Board of Education hates black people, but I know the textbooks they give my children to read and the schools that we have to go to. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. We're listening to James Baldwin here on the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. All of the Western nations have been caught in a lie. The lie of their pretended humanism. This means that their history has no moral justification and that the West has no moral authority. Vile as I am, states one of the characters in Dostoevsky's The Idiot. I don't believe in the wagons that bring bread to humanity. For the wagons that bring bread to humanity may coldly exclude a considerable part of humanity from enjoying what is brought. For a very long time, America prospered. This prosperity cost millions of people their lives. Now, not even the people who are the most spectacular recipients of the benefits of this prosperity are able to endure these benefits. They can neither understand them nor do without them. Above all, they cannot imagine the price paid by their victims or subjects for this way of life. And so they cannot afford to know why the victims are revolting. by force alone. Force does not work the way its advocates think, in fact, it does. It does not, for example, reveal to the victim the strength of the adversary. On the contrary, it reveals the weakness, even the panic, of the adversary. In this revelation, Invest the victim with passion. There is 
a day in Palm Springs that I will remember forever. A bright day. I was based in Hollywood working on the screen version of the autobiography of Malcolm X. This was a difficult assignment since I had known Malcolm after all. Crossed swords with him. Worked with him. And held him in that great esteem which is not easily distinguishable if it is distinguishable from love. Billy D. Williams had come to town and he was staying at the house. I very much wanted Billy D. for the role of Malcolm. Phone had been brought out to the pool and now it rang. And I picked it up. The record player was still playing. He's not dead yet. But it's a head wound. I have some very sad news for all of you. And I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight. I hardly remember the rest of the evening at all. I remember weeping briefly, more in helpless rage than in sorrow, and Billy trying to comfort me. But I really don't remember that evening at all. Mother dear, may I go downtown instead of out to play and march the streets of Birmingham in a freedom march today. But mother, I won't be alone as a children will go The church was packed, and the pew before me sat Marlon Brando, Sammy Davis, Curly Kitt, Sidney Poitier nearby. I saw Harry Belafonte sitting next to Coretta King. I have a childhood handover thing about not weeping in public, and I was concentrating on holding myself together. I did not want to weep for Martin. Tears seemed futile. But I may also have been afraid, and I could not have been the only one, that if I began to weep, I would not be able to stop. I started to cry, and I stumbled. Sammy grabbed my arm. The story of the Negro in America is the story of America. It is not a pretty story. What can we do? Well, I am tired. I don't know how it will come about. I know that no matter how it comes about, it will be bloody. It will be hard. I still believe that we can do with this country something that has not been done before. We are misled here because we think of numbers. You don't need numbers. You need passion. 
And this is proven by the history of the world. The tragedy is that most of the people who say they care about it do not care. What they care about is their safety and their profits. When I was laying in jail with my doctor, failed to make people happier or make them better. We do not want to admit this, and we do not admit it. We persist in believing that the empty and criminal among our children are the result of some miscalculation in the formula that can be corrected. That the bottomless and aimless hostility which makes our cities among the most dangerous in the world is created and felt by a handful of aberrants. That the lack Yawning everywhere in this country of passionate conviction, of personal authority, proves only our rather appealing tendency to be gregarious and democratic. To look around the United States today is enough to make prophets and angels weep. This is not the land of the free. It is only very unwillingly and sporadically the home of the brave. I sometimes feel it to be an absolute miracle that the entire black population of the United States of America has not long ago succumbed to raging paranoia. People finally say to you in an attempt to dismiss the social reality, but you're so bitter. Well, I may or may not be But if I were, I would have good reasons for it. Chief among them that American blindness or cowardice which allows us to pretend that life presents no reasons for being bitter. of experience. One, to put it cruelly, can be summed up in the images of Gary Cooper and Doris Day, two of the most grotesque appeals to innocence the world has ever seen. And the other, subterranean, indispensable, and denied, can be summed up, let us say, in the tone and in the face of Ray Charles. confrontation between these two levels of experience. 
a pessimist because I'm alive. To be a pessimist means that you have agreed that human life is an academic matter. So I'm forced to be an optimist. I'm forced to believe that we can survive whatever we must survive. But the future of the Negro in this country is precisely as bright or as dark as the future of the country. It is entirely up to the American people and our representatives. It is entirely up to the American people whether or not they're going to face and deal with and embrace this stranger whom they've maligned so long. What white people have to do is try to find out in their own hearts why it was necessary to have a nigger in the first place. Because I'm not a nigger. I'm a man. But if you think I'm a nigger, it means you need it. The question you've got to ask yourself, the white population of this country has got to ask itself, north and south, because it's one country, and for a Negro, there is no difference in the north and the south. There's just a, no, a difference in the way they castrate you. But, that's, but the fact of the castration is the American fact. If I'm not the nigger here, and the, you invented him, you, the white people, invented him, then you've got to find out why. And the future of the country depends on that, whether or not it's able to ask that question. James Baldwin. I said that shit like 
I'm the biggest hypocrite in 2015. When I finish this, if you listen, then sure you will agree. This plot is bigger than me. It's generational hatred. It's cynicism. It's grimy. Little justification. I'm African-American. I'm African. I'm black as the heart of a f***ing Aryan. I'm black as the name of Tyrone and Darius. Excuse my French, but f*** you, no f*** y'all. That's as blunt as it gets. I know you hate me, don't you? You hate my people. I can tell because it's threats when I see you. I can tell because your waist is evil. No, I can tell because you in love with the desert eagle. Thinking maliciously, he get a chain, then you gon' bleed him. It's funny how Zulu and Thosa might go to war. Two tribal armies that want to build and destroy. Remind me of these Compton Crip gangs that live next door. Beefing with pop rules, only death settled the score. So no matter how much I say I like to preach with the Panthers. Or tell Georgia State Marcus Garvey got all the answers. Or try to celebrate February like it's my B-Day. Or eat watermelon chicken and Kool-Aid on weekdays. Or jump high enough to get Michael Jordan endorsements. Or watch BET cause urban support is important. So why did I weep when Trayvon Martin was in the street? When gang banging make me kill a nigga blacker than me. Hypocrite. forward to 2016 this is Chris Rock at the Academy Awards hey well I'm here at the Academy Awards otherwise known as the uh, white people's choice awards you realize if they nominated host I wouldn't even get this job but this is the wildest craziest Oscars to ever host because we got all this controversy. No black nominees. And people are like, Chris, you should boycott. Chris, you should quit. You should quit. You know, how how come it's only unemployed people that tell you to quit something, huh? (laughs) No one with a job ever tells you to quit. So I thought about quitting. I thought about it real hard. But I realized they're going to have the Oscars anyway. They're not going to cancel the Oscars because I quit. You know, and the last thing I need is to lose another job to Kevin Hart, okay? (laughs) Now, the the big question, why this Oscars? Why this Oscars, you know? It's the 88th Academy Awards, which means this whole no black nominees thing has happened at least 71 other times. (laughs) You got to figure that it happened in the 50s, in the 60s, One of those years, Sydney didn't put out a movie. I'm sure there were no black nominees some of those years, say 62 or 63. And black people did not protest. Why? Because we had real things to protest at the time. You know? You know, we're too busy being raped and lynched to care about who won best cinematographer. 
You know, when, you, when your grandmother's swinging from a tree, it's really hard to care about best documentary foreign short. But what happened this year? People went mad, you know? Spike got mad, and Sharpton got mad, and Jada went mad, and Will went mad. Everybody went mad, you know? Will was not nominated for concussion. I get it. I get it. You get mad. It's not fair that Will was this good and didn't get nominated. Yeah, you're right. It's also not fair that Will was paid 20 million for Wild Wild West, okay? <laughs> okay? You know, this year the Oscars, things are gonna be a little different. This year, in the in memoriam package, it's just gonna be black people that were shot by the cops on their way to the movies. <laughs> I said it, all right? But here's the real question. The real question everybody wants to know is, is Hollywood racist? Is Hollywood racist? You know, you gotta go at that the right way. Is it Burning Cross racist? No. Is it Fetch Me Some Lemonade racist? No, 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 no. It's a, it's a different type of racist. I remember one night I was at a fundraiser for President Obama. A lot of you were there. And, you know, it's me and all of Hollywood. And, you know, it's all of us there, and there's about four black people there. Me, Quincy Jones, Russell Simmons, Questlove, you know, the usual suspects, right? <laughs> so, at some point, you get to take a picture with the president, you know? And as they're setting up the picture, you get like a little moment with the president. I'm like, Mr. President, you see all these writers and producers and actors? They don't hire black people. And they're the nicest white people on earth. They're liberals. Cheese. That's right. Is Hollywood racist? You're damn right Hollywood's racist, but it ain't the racist that you've grown accustomed to. Hollywood is sorority racist. It's like, we like you, Rhonda, but you're not a kappa. <laughs> That's how Hollywood's, yeah? But things are changing. Things are changing. Yeah, we got a Black Rocky this year. Yeah, some people call it Creed. I call it Black Rocky. <laughs> and that's a big, that's, a, that's an unbelievable statement. I, I mean, because Rocky takes place in a world where white athletes are as good as black athletes. <laughs> so Rocky's a science fiction movie. <laughs> There's things that happen in Star Wars that are more believable than things that happen in Rocky, okay? But hey, we're here to honor actors. We're here to honor actors. We're here to honor film, you know? But there's a lot of snubs. One of the biggest snubs no one's talking about. My favorite actor in the world is Paul Giamatti. Paul Giamatti, I believe, is the greatest actor in the world. Think about what Paul Giamatti has done the last couple of years. Last year, he's in 12 Years a Slave, hates black people. This year, he's straight out of Compton, loves black people. <laughs> Last year, he's whooping Lapita. This year, he's crying at Easy es funeral. <laughs> now, that's range. <laughs> yeah, Ben Affleck can't do that. But what I'm trying to say is, you know, it's not about boycott anything. It's just, we want opportunity. We want the black actors to get the same 
opportunities. And why that? That's it. That's it. You know, not just once. You know, all you guys get great parts all the time. But what about the black actors? Look at Jamie Foxx. Jamie Foxx is one of the best actors in the world, man. Jamie Foxx, yeah. Jamie Foxx was so good in Ray that they went to the hospital and unplugged the real Ray Charles. It's like, we don't need two of these. And here's Richard Pryor. Cops put a hurting on your ass, man, you know. They really degrade you. White folks don't believe that shit. Don't believe cops degrade. Oh, come on. Those people are resisting arrest. I'm tired of this harassment of police officers. Cops, the police live in your neighborhood, see? And you be known them as Officer Timpson. Hello, Officer Timpson. Going bowling tonight? <laughs> Niggas don't know them like that. See, white folks get a ticket. They pull over. Hey, officer. Yes. Glad to be of help. Nigga got to be talking about, I am reaching into my pocket for my license. Because I don't want to be no motherfucking accident. <laughs> You wonder why a nigga don't go completely mad. Now, see, black people are frightened to death of therapists. For some reason, of all the people on the planet in America, we some motherfuckers that need some therapy. You believe me, because we are up. We up because we got to be insane because we ain't killed you motherfuckers. insane cause you all white folks wouldn't take this for a minute <laughs> less on 200 years you motherfuckers a week and that'd be it you motherfuckers be in the streets with guns killing babies <laughs> motherfuckers ever come to y'all talking about get on the boat <laughs> well you can kiss my ass pal that's what you can do we had the revolution. Remember the revolution, brother? We lost. <laughs> Motherfuckers kicked our ass for about six months. <laughs> we was bad on TV for about six months. We had white folks scared. Yeah, you motherfucker. Okay. <laughs> white folks were scared. Six months, the shit was over. <laughs> Paid the niggas off, they left. <laughs> we was still out here talking about what? Huh? <laughs> what, what, what happened? Where, where's you and Eldridge? What happened to the guys? The shit's over? <laughs> I mean, it's back to singing groups? <laughs> it's nice that white folks gonna celebrate, you guys gonna celebrate 200 years of kicking ass. You motherfuckers have kicked everybody's ass on earth 200 years. That's right, motherfuckers. You motherfuckers so bad, people from outer space don't even come in no more. Spaceships used to land here and shit in the 50s and they stopped. They said, them white folks are motherfuckers. Better not stay in that shit because this is, this is some terrible motherfuckers down there, boy. They're celebrating this year. You motherfuckers held on for 200 years. This killed everybody. And Indians didn't have a chance. <laughs> Indians saying, well, look at those strange motherfuckers. Right, you son of a bitch. <laughs> Just get us through the winter, you little red bastards. We'll be all right. <laughs> be nice to them. They know this place. 
that's some funny shit. The Indians, if they'd have known, boy, they'd just start killing motherfuckers immediately when they got Christopher Columbus. I had to claim this in the name of... <laughs> <laughs> but it only happens in dreams, huh? You motherfuckers killed dreams. White people, weird, use gunpowder. Chinese had gunpowder 20,000 years before a motherfucker ever thought of a bullet. White people had it a year, said, well, make some bullets, we can kill people. I don't know what the Chinese are fucking off for, but we can actually do damage with this <laughs> Mother spiritual, we're after the material. <laughs> See, a little racism sets in, and I fight against that. Because humor breaks through all that. That's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, have a wonderful week. Clouds seem to follow me Alcohol that my pop swallow bottle me No apology, I walk with a bold on my shoulder It's a cold war, I'm a colder soldier Hold the same fight that made Martin Luther the king I ain't using it for the right thing In between lean and the fiends Hustle and the schemes I put together pieces of a dream I still have one I got a dream self-evident that all